Welcome back to Probably About Politics, this episode of Summer School, a tale of two letters. Four letters. PMs and UNs. I think it's four letters, technically. A tale of four letters coming to you in two parts. The Prime Minister and the United Nations. Seemingly unrelated. But you may realize how close those letters are to each other. M and N are right next to each other. That's true. (laughs) And so we're going to draw some even closer ties between those two offices. Yep. Bodies. This episode. We won't. We're We're answering some common questions this week that we get for things that people want us to talk about on summer school, what they want to learn about. And this, this summer, because we're talking about more applied things, how things actually work, some of the more in-depth machinations, we're looking at what the prime minister does, who they are, why we don't vote for them, but they are a person anyway. Some people vote for them. Some people do vote for the prime minister, yes. um, but only a, only uh, less than 1% yeah, of Canadians. His, his writing isn't that big. <laughs> And then we're going to talk about a little bit kind of what the prime minister Mm -hmm. does. And then we're going to switch gears to answer some questions that we get a lot about a body that we talk about and sort of their influence every once in a while, which Mm -hmm. is the United Nations. We'll talk about their history, dive into kind of what actually is the United Nations and kind of what they do other than being a body of 200 countries. Yeah, other than being a body that sort of just like appears in some of the elections we're talking about and we can't really tell you what they're doing exactly you may know the united nations generally as just somebody standing in front of a green wall giving a speech (laughs) why that wall behind the podium is made of like emerald or jade is beyond that won't come up it doesn't look great kaylee's gonna give us a breakdown of the architectural design of the United Nations General Assembly yes, Hall. which I'm excited about because I've really been pitching we do a real switch in topic, architecture. Which they do meet, uh, actually, interestingly, in New mm-hmm. York City in an extraterritorial yes. region. So it's actually not part of the United States, which is kind of cool. Um, but we're not talking about <laughs> that yet. We're talking about the Prime Minister of Canada and Prime Ministers generally, mm-hmm. I guess, in this sort of system. Uh, you, we can talk, you can go see our episode on bicameralism if you're interested from last summer school into why we have in our Westminster system, a Senate and a lower house of commons, but that's for you to find out and us to already know, uh, the role of the prime minister, well, we're going to talk about, but first of all, why don't we vote for the prime minister? Like other people vote for mm-hmm. presidents and they vote for their Congress people and they vote for their house representatives but the prime minister is different than that. And why is that? Um, yeah. So that's like, I think that's definitely at the, the base level. Like you can really leave um, from the election um, having not known who your MP is, but it's important to note that your prime minister is an MP for somebody somewhere. So, so you're voting for a member of parliament. Um, and then if all the members, uh, if the mem- majority of the members of parliament for one party win, then the member of parliament that is the leader of that party will get to be the prime minister. And so it it fe- it can feel like, I think, in the general election, like there's a direct line between you and the prime minister, your vote and the prime minister. But it's it's actually a little it's a little offset um, in theory. And in some in some systems, like when we talked about uh, consensus government, you might vote for your MP and then the MPs might get to make some sort of decision about 
who the prime minister is. Um, this can also happen in our system in like a minority situation. There may have to be some sort of compromise between different parties about who the the leader of an eventual prime minister will be. And I guess in that case, maybe your vote did more directly speak to who will be prime minister. Um, but we don't, yeah, we don't vote for them because we're voting for who represents our area. So this kind of brings up an interesting point to me in that for some people, the prime minister of Canada is their mm-hmm. member of parliament. And so like just last month, I ran into my member of parliament at, a mm-hmm. community event and she was just there talking to people there are some photo mm-hmm. ops and everything she wasn't just some random person at the event it was special because she was there but she was there and we were able to talk to her and i was able to you know get to see her how do members of ridings in which the prime minister sits how does their interaction with their mp differ like i could in theory call mm-hmm. up my mp and I could have a phone conversation with her and we could get something done, hopefully, or she would hear, hear out my mm-hmm. message. Um, does that happen with the prime minister? Do they set time aside for their home riding or does that kind of get just handled by their office more generally? Um, I think theore- you could, so you would probably say that, yes, theoretically, they do set time aside for their riding. They are representing their riding to, to a certain degree. Um, uh, they probably go back. I think that there has been instances where somebody like Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has gone back and held town halls in his riding, or you know, um, I think that many people would argue that that can be a bit uh, superficial in a lot of ways, um, because ultimately he does have to serve the national interest um, as a top priority. Mm-hmm. I think. This is sort of something you see in not only the prime minister, but also cabinet positions as well. Like you're, you're divided by your responsibilities um, from your riding. And I think that actually probably comes back as a bit of a critique of the, of the system we have. Whereas like in a presidential system in the U S the, the president is separately elected from your state representative or member of Senate. And then he also picks a cabinet who is, unelected, but, you know, again, isn't pulling from your um, representation um, as like a, as the equivalent of a member of parliament. Um, So I think that there is, uh, I think that in, in best case scenarios, yeah, you do have cabinet ministers who are able to go back and they're in touch with their riding and they're getting out and they're campaigning and you see the same, similar things with prime ministers. I think it can be dangerous to not do that um, to, to because you do have to get reelected in your riding in order to serve as the prime minister or, or um, a significant member of parliament. Um, I think you see it similarly with other like, um, like the leader of the NDP party had to pick a riding that he was going to, he was going to run in. Um, and there was some discontent with yeah. the idea that he would run in a, a certain riding. And, and part of that is because he, is trying to get elected here, but he's not necessarily trying to get elected in that location in order to represent it. He's trying to get elected in that location for a, a sort of a higher, a higher job or a, a more big scale yeah. uh, perspective. Yeah. Jagmeet Singh is not necessarily invested in Burnaby. No, <laughs> I'm not going to say he's not, I, but he's not necessarily. Lived, <laughs> having lived 
having his home residence actually 5,000 kilometers mm-hmm. away uh, in the yeah. GTA that that was a he still was able yeah. to win um, but that was a that was a talking point but on the other hand it kind of raises the uh, prestige mm-hmm. sort of of that riding like people know about the riding mm-hmm. of Papineau yeah. in Montreal because it's Justin Trudeau's home riding um, but because members of an individual riding actually have to vote for the mm-hmm. prime minister as their own member of parliament how often does it happen where the prime minister during the general election or the leader of the party during a general election doesn't win their own seat <laughs> um i so i don't know i can't answer specifically but it does happen <laughs> um it does happen that they lose it. i think elizabeth may of the green party has on a few occasions ran and not won in the area that she was running in. Um, it's, it's sort of a bit of a gamble that a leader has to take. Like you, there's some that would say run in a riding that, you know, you'll win. Um, that's like traditionally liberal run there, um, because you'll get it for sure. But then there's others that would say run in a riding. That's a bit harder to win to really prove that, you know, you've earned this position that you prove that, uh, the support behind you, um, which I think is uh, some sometimes what the the Green Party has done in in riding in running in certain areas where um, it was tricky to win maybe or maybe it wasn't guaranteed because if you win there then you prove that you know the say for example a more minor party like the Green Party um, can get consensus of a vote um, at a at a federal level or something like that, but. Uh, yeah, it happens. I don't know that it's ever really happened at a prime ministerial level. Yeah, we recently saw kind of this running in a safe seat or running in a more dangerous seat with mm-hmm. Jagmeet Singh and Burnaby South. That was not that was a contested um, mm-hmm. riding for sure, hotly contested in 2015 yeah. by the Liberals. Um, and kind of the opposite of that would be in two in two senses. Uh, Stephen Harper running in uh, Calgary yeah. Heritage as a riding, <laughs> uh, which is a very safe conservative seat. And also, normally when a party gets a new mm-hmm. uh, leader who doesn't have a seat in Parliament, not during a general election, often when that member runs for election in a riding, the two opposing parties, or the other opposing parties, would traditionally not run candidates against uh, mm-hmm. the leader often though that's because that riding was already held by yeah the party. yeah often it's it doesn't seem worth it to spend the resources like we're not i don't think we can say it's like a good etiquette thing more so that it's it's uh it, it would it's expensive to run an election and if you know that you're gonna lose you probably run less yeah and and people are bringing this up as sort of a traditional thing that's done in the gentlemanly part of mm. politics um, with Jagmeet Singh's seat, uh, but it is sort it is a different. It was sort of an apples to oranges. Yeah, comparison. yeah. <laughs> um, but we're a little bit off track here, but that's okay. Um, so, say the prime minister, say the member of parliament does win the seats, and they are the leader of a party. Now they're the prime minister. Mm-hmm. What's the role of the prime minister? Because we talked in our bicameral in our bicameral episode about how they're not the head of state, they're the mm-hmm. head of government. And what does the head of government do? And in this case, what does Justin Trudeau? What is his actual role? Maybe in the House of Commons, 
and outside the House of Commons. Well. Yeah, so I think he's he's yeah he's basically he's a head of government as well as being um, essentially the head of the executive. So he's it. I think um, I was sort of reading something and saying, like, in terms of governing positions, it's one of the most powerful in sort of Western democracy. Like, he, the seat of the prime minister has uh, a lot of a lot of power that's been passed down to it. But he essentially he votes like any member of the House and Commons. But as the leader of the the largest political party in theory, he gets to maintain like sort of a tight control over all of his members. They vote with him sort of generally as he sees fits bills that are going to get introduced and laws that are going to be passed are sort of his at his discretion um generally speaking um it's it's very yeah it's just the prime minister's agenda is sort of basically what is is taken into consideration i think the saying is he's uh first among equals he is he is a voting member of parliament he has a writing he has to represent but he is more <laughs> he is first among the equals so he he gets to go first um yeah and then at the sort of at the more executive level like he he can decide if we're going to war um he gets pretty much sole control over foreign policy he is canada's diplomat um he's also sort of who represents us so if the federal government has issues that need to go to the provincial level or even local level he can also represent those sorts of interests so like negotiations for the pipeline or the carbon tax those were all led particularly by the prime minister and then he can defer it to his cabinet so he had cabinet ministers probably that also would have been leading that process but it's it's uh, yeah deferential to him uh, basically. So a lot. He controls a lot. Especially being the prime minister in a majority mm-hmm. government, there's really not a lot that happens that is not because the prime minister yes, said to be so. fair, it is, yeah, it's a different it's a different ball game when it's a minority um, and then things do become like sort of multi-party compromises um, and juggling acts that uh, in some ways make for much more interesting uh, governance to watch, but Things don't get mm-hmm. done quite as sweepingly. But if he has a majority, he can basically do what he wants. With also, and we don't often talk about this because it doesn't really matter in Canada, The uh, he also has a majority mm-hmm. in the Senate of liberals, despite mo- the majority of that majority of liberals being known as the independent mm-hmm. senators group because he said, we don't have any yeah, liberal senators. Yeah. <laughs> they <laughs> should be their own. Anyway, uh, but so I think that kind of covers the role of the prime minister, his role is everything. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, Which we had a question before we started about really the difference between the Canadian prime minister and the um, prime minister of the United Kingdom and kind of their differences in their roles Mm -hmm. and how the Canadian prime minister seems to be more special within the house than the prime minister of the United Kingdom within their house. Yeah. So I think, and I think that's like, it's important to remember in this, like the UK system very much is the Canadian system very much comes from the UK system. Um, I think you can attribute it to a few things like we're different countries and different geographical locations. So Canada is North of the U S so we definitely have sort of the influence of the idea of a president. Um, yeah. but we're also, and, and being so far away from the UK, we also have great distance from the queen who is through the governor general, our, our monarch and um, a head of state. But I think that gives the prime minister a lot of distance. I mean, in the UK, 
Um, the the queen still technically, uh, I think, I don't know for sure that this happens, but meets with the prime minister every week to sort of, as it, it was uh, described on the Wikipedia when I googled it, to warn, to encourage, and to be consulted. Um, and, and, you know, with the uh, having kissed the the monarch's hand, they be, can become the prime minister, basically. So, so there is much more of a sense that it it devolves from the queen um, or the monarch at mm-hmm. the at the time, and then yeah, and then it just comes down to the way that I think uh, etiquette and current political situations in two different countries are the the amount of power because sometimes yeah. the Canadian prime minister seems like he has very little power if he has a minority situation. The House of Commons in the United Kingdom is also uh, quite a bit larger than the Canadian House of Commons, twice as large. So there are other, everybody seems less important when there's (laughs) so much more and also being overshadowed by the queen right Mm -hmm. down the street. But so we talked about the prime minister representing the government at the provincial level sometimes and even at the local Mm -hmm. level you mentioned, but somewhere that the prime minister does not (laughs) represent Canada is that the yes, United Nations? He gives up that responsibility usually. <laughs> there is kind of that famous video of Justin Trudeau uh, giving that speech at mm-hmm. the United Nations behind that famous yeah, green to wall. the General Assembly. Uh, yeah, to the General Assembly. Um, so the United Nations. Uh, we're going to switch gears into yeah. this now. Uh, it feels abrupt, <laughs> but yeah, we're. But no, no, it's not. We told you we we're going to do this. It's fine. It's an episode coming in two parts. Uh, the United Nations. First, we're going to give a whirlwind history mm-hmm. lesson on the United Nations. United Nations, following World War One, everybody said, we don't want another big war like this <laughs> to happen. We should have a body of people, a body of that countries are represented in that can say, hey, guys, everybody mm-hmm. calm down. Let's not have a giant war. Um, and so the League of Nations was formed, yes. was formed by uh, American president at the time, Woodrow mm-hmm. Wilson. This League of Nations was seen largely as a failure yeah. because uh, less than 30 years later, we have World War II, which you would um, you would guess when a body is formed to stop world wars and the only second world war <laughs> that's ever happened happens, not doing a super hot job. So World War II happens. And then afterwards, another American president, FDR, and also the prime minister of the united kingdom at the time get together and they're like hey league of nations didn't work let's start another league of (laughs) nations uh and also because now we have nuclear weapons and it's even a bigger deal that we don't have these huge large-scale uh traditional conflicts between countries Mm -hmm. and so but the league of nations being such a gigantic failure as it was the united or they name it the united nations instead Mm -hmm. of league of nations um, because I guess unite, united things are more peaceful than leagues. Leagues are competitive, where uh, united nations are peaceful. Interestingly, the United States, not a member of the United Nations. Yes, no, FDR didn't uh, get to see that through, and the next president was a, a little less interested. That's kind of the history of it. Now we have the United Nations. Most countries in the world are members of the mm-hmm. United Nations. The United Nations is more than just one thing. The United Nations is made up of six uh, member bodies. Today, we're going to talk about two, the General Assembly and the Security Council, which are arguably the most important, but probably not the ones that we interact with the most as individuals. We know UNICEF, UNESCO World Heritage Sites we've all been to. We hear sometimes about the World Health Organization. They tell us not to drink or smoke. Um, (laughs) 
But uh, the General Assembly and the Security Council is really where it goes yeah, down. Yeah, that's definitely where all the action and power of the UN exists, for sure. Now, whether or not anything actually goes down in the General Assembly <laughs> is up for debate. <laughs> Does anything useful actually come out of the General Assembly? Some people would say no. Many people Mm -hmm. would say yes. Um, The Security Council, uh, a lot of interesting things and important things come out of the United Nations Security Council. Whether things come out or if they come disassembled or stopped, you know. (laughs) We'll get to it, though. Whatever. Uh, And as a a podcast primarily revolving around democracy, Mm -hmm. um, both interesting bodies because they're mostly Mm. unelected the security council does have seats that are elected Mm. on two-year terms the people are always coming in and out but there are five countries that are the permanent security council seats that are just there because they said democracy light at best perhaps (laughs) okay so maybe let's start with the general assembly and kind of what is the General Assembly? Justin Trudeau doesn't represent us at the G- General Assembly. Who represents people at the General Assembly? And what do they vote on? Yeah, so usually you send, basically you send, uh, your government, um, you uh, usually will send a, a representative to the United Nations. It, it would be, I guess, not wholly dissim- dissimilar to sending a diplomat to another country. Uh, and and usually they'll have like a, they'll have a whole team of of different ranking members that work on different issues and represent your country there. Um, it will change based on the government though. Um, so Trudeau's representative will usually be different than um, say Harper of the previous government in Canada. So then because of that, the tone of the General Assembly can change pretty dramatically if say somebody who is not very pro UN. Um, uh, gets elected to the government and sends somebody else to uh, to represent them there, and they decide they don't want to participate in this way or this do these things, and and that can halt sort of things. So there is a certain element that we see similarly in other governments. I think like in other levels of government where you know you're dealing with changing politics and and policy directions and and those sorts of things. And so. Primarily, I think the United Nations is seen as an organization promoting peace Mm -hmm. between countries. And so the General Assembly, though, can't vote on whether or not somebody doesn't launch a Mm -hmm. missile at each other necessarily. Like what are these? They can't pass laws, really, but they're voting on these things and they're called resolutions that are passed. What is a resolution and what generally are resolutions about so yeah they can they get they get to go back and forth and deliberate on basically amongst all these nations on what is the the priorities for them what are what are their stances on the issue and come to sort of like general broad sometimes general pretty broad strokes agreements on what should be done what could be done they also can kind of con- they kind of control the purse of the UN so they have the budgetary control mm-hmm. but yeah so they 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 get to pass uh resolutions by like so a, a state might come with something and say that like this is this is my issue this is what we're really concerned about then they can as a group choose to determine whether or not they're going to prioritize it what is the general stance on it um 
it's yeah, it's it's sort of a place to have a conversation about where what are the global the major global crises so they can make resolutions on migration crises and make resolutions on nuclear weapon usage or human rights crises um, to draw attention to them, um, to agree, to see who, what a nation sort of generally agree about what response should be made. Uh, it's, yeah, it's not the most exciting uh, area, I guess. <laughs> so to give kind of an, an idea of what a resolution might be, the, the Paris mm, Climate Agreement yeah. was a, was a was a resolution passed by the United Nations um, that everybody came to agreement, quote unquote, yeah. everybody came to an agreement that these are certain climate targets that should be met um, by the global mm-hmm. community. And so each country should do a certain amount to meet yeah. these targets. And at a country like so at a country level, it can be a little dispersed how they impact. But like it does carry a lot of political weight because like within the General Assembly, it's it's legally binding towards how they're going to operate and how they're going to do, do things. Um, it it's a space where you've publicly stated your opinion, and if you've agreed to the Paris, the resolution on the Paris climate on the Paris climate change agreement, then you're you're sort of it gives me or civil society organizations or other countries who are trying to work towards it something to really pull on and say, hey, you said you would you would do this, you committed to this. So. And the first resolution uh, was on uh, Mm -hmm. nuclear disarmament by the United Nations. And so it's kind of a a broad array of things. But often I think when you look at what are the major problems facing Earth (laughs) or the global uh, population, um, normally there'll be a resolution that's in discussion or that Mm -hmm. has been passed uh, regarding um, that issue, like nuclear war, something that could hurt everybody, or climate change that could destroy the earth, or uh, United Nations uh, human rights. Yeah, it's it's like a lot of it's like when you start to see nuclear war occurring, or you start to see world war world wars happening, it really becomes. It be, I think it just became a global moment of realizing that we have some issues that cannot solely be taken on by one country and they're going to require some compromise and there needs to be a stage where there are are rules and understandings about how things will proceed for that to take place Um, and that's the UN General Assembly and so while the General Assembly doesn't actually pass laws it does end up influencing um, laws that Mm -hmm. are passed so um, for example, with the Paris Climate Agreement, um, that's not really a legally binding anything that makes us have carbon taxes yeah. in Canada. Um, but because of its passage, it kind of directs the policy of many countries, whereby now um, Canadians are talking about meeting Paris Climate Accord um, mm-hmm. targets. And so uh, trying to then pass laws in your home country about trying to meet these things that are kind of directed and led by the by mm-hmm. the United Nations. Also on, on other issues as well, they kind of lead they kind of mm-hmm. carry the banner on on certain international issues. But not all countries have seemingly an even say uh despite despite there be every every country having their own vote and so it's it's 
kind of a, not democratic in mm-hmm. multiple ways <laughs> in that and many small countries can get together and have a large say because each country gets one vote no, no matter what size it is but also um, countries get say and mo- and kind of move and shake in the United Nations by mm-hmm. the amount of money that they pay in to the organization yeah so I think it you really see that playing out in the two the two bodies we're if we get to the Security Council I think the Security Council is where the money really, you know, you have the money, you have the global power comes into play. And the General Assembly is definitely the stage where small countries or smaller in like economic size, uh, population scale countries, um, but potentially with very similar maybe interests can really say, if you don't like please us, um, we're not going to support this. Or And, and I think it it's a bit of a, you know, it's it's a bit of a, a trade-off that maybe is worth it that, that allows, you know, some smaller countries that in any other setting where the UN didn't exist probably wouldn't get as much of a, a global ability to direct sort of policy and to, and, and in many cases, these are countries that are struggling with significant development issues or stuff like that, that would otherwise be ignored in terms of looking at them as global problems. So yeah, it's a, it is a, it's definitely not, I don't. I don't think it's it's uh, fair to claim it to be particularly uh, necessarily particularly democratic. So much as yeah, just a stage a stage for for actors to uh, be able to speak uh, um, and for and countries be able to hurt be heard where they might not have otherwise. Mm-hmm. There is a, a kind of a leader, I guess, of the General Assembly, the Secretary mm-hmm. General, who uh, is appointed by the uh by the general assembly in a manner dissimilar to an election sort of yeah he's he's not really the he's he's kind of like the top bureaucrat so there's a rotating president of the general assembly and that would technically be the leader but he is he's he's the guy who's um gets to take what the general assembly has given him and and go forth and try and do it and then also um yeah, and, and and serves, I guess, as the face of, of the UN. So in a lot of instances where the UN might be invited to a, a situation, like a, to he might, he, there's a lot of situations where he will serve as the UN's representative to something, if it's more high-level, global level. Um, um, and and he also will sometimes send, like, he you, you can have representatives of the... UNHCR, which is the United Nations uh, High Commission on Refugees, um, will have representatives that can go and serve as uh, representatives of the UN's, that particular UN body's interests in this particular topic and try and guide the policy direction to serve their their vision and their role um, and, and create action based on what comes out of the General Assembly, what comes out of the United Nations Security Council, etc. The Secretary General of the United Nations is, I think, kind of an interesting Mm -hmm. position, not only because the length of the term is exceptionally Mm -hmm. long in terms of other United Nations Mm -hmm. term lengths, where like the the, uh, head of the Security Council rotates on a monthly basis, and the president, is, the president of the General Assembly, is elected on a yearly basis. But ever since 
the mid-1900s, in 1945, the first Secretary General of the United Nations, there's been less than yeah. 10. <laughs> we're, we're, currently on, we're currently on our ninth Secretary General in Antonio mm-hmm. Gutierrez. Everybody else more or less has had two terms. Two, so serving 10 mm-hmm. years as the Secretary General of this, a kind of like the highest post of this huge international mm-hmm. um, organization, I always I wouldn't necessarily think of when I think of like the most powerful like leaders in the world. I wouldn't often think of the Secretary General of the United mm-hmm. Nations for some reason. But then when I look at the list of people who have been Secretaries General of the <laughs> United Nations and people during my lifetime of Kofi Annan, Ban Ki Moon, and Antonio Gutierrez, it's just like names that I have just seemingly consistently heard my mm-hmm. entire life over and over yeah. and over again but i i couldn't really i i guess before kind of looking into this sort of thing i wouldn't be able to point to kind of who they are or what they actually mm-hmm. do but it's kind of interesting that they're just you know, this like ever-present uh guiding hand to this this international yeah community. i think it's and i think it, there's a value to being it being a bit longer i mean i'm sure that there is there are cons as well, but he, so someone like Antonio Gutierrez will probably in most situations outlast, um, his leadership will outlast, um, any like political leader that is in, in most like healthy Western mm-hmm. democracy. So, so he will be able, mm-hmm. and I think it provides a sort of a consistency and a stability to the actions of the UN and to how the UN operates. Um, and yeah, when, and, and, and yeah, that, and, and, and to be able to know that um, someone who maybe, if maybe a country that is a major donor incredibly significant donor is elected um, and decides that he doesn't like the UN and he's not going to give them as much money as he normally would. Um, someone like the secretary general can out, will probably outride him uh, a little be, be in his position of power longer um, and to sort of steer the ship through, through these periods of time. But I think it's, the rotational nature of the others is is useful yeah, in giving a chance for um, like a country like so sometimes it'll be France but sometimes sometimes it'll be Thailand or you know just any a tiny country in the general assembly can end up for a for a, a period of time sitting in the leadership position mm-hmm. to say like these are the things that we need to prioritize like we have been ignoring this whole time so there's sort of both it's like he can consistently steer the ship st- steer a, a very uh, a fairly significant bureaucracy that runs it um and and the diplomacy uh of of continuing it through uh, by being stably present but then also a rotational leadership in the other bodies i think allows the constant like reworking of what is the problem of now what are what do we need to deal with now not that i'm sure he's very aware of what the problems are now because i'm <laughs> other countries you, you know he he uh you hear it you have to deal with what is happening in the present constantly i think at the un mm. and Speaking of not just the present, mm-hmm. but the past, long-time listeners of the pod will remember 
that in the very first ever uh, episode yeah. <laughs> of Probably Go Politics, we had a section uh, or a, a part of the podcast called uh, Phases of the Moon, uh, where we followed um, the kind of the goings on of uh, Secretary General Ban Ki Moon at the time uh, and what he what he'd been up to kind of since our last recording. And I think maybe we should bring that back because it kind of gives a nice sampling of the things on a global mm-hmm. scale that are happening. Um, yeah. Cause I think we, yeah, we're always talking about the local, but I think it's very, it's very like three levels of it. You want, you want to know what is happening at the local level, the country that's influencing the election, but what is the big level? Like, are they facing a migration uh, crisis or you know, mm-hmm. um, major climate change issues that uh, this, this current secretary general has really prioritized as, um, galvanizing major accent action towards that, or uh, do they have UN peacekeepers in their country for a conflict situation or election monitors? Mm-hmm. All these are at the international level. That's like what is influencing them from the outside, I guess. Um, and seeing what the UN is doing now, I think could could help illuminate some of the situations we've covered. And just finally to touch on, I guess, uh, other than UNESCO World Heritage <laughs> Sites and UNICEF being. Uh, important parts of the United Nations uh, is the Security mm-hmm. Council, where I guess we we could probably you could probably have an entire you could have an entire university course on the United Nations Security Council and what it does and how it interacts and what how the mm-hmm. choices that it makes and countries making choices, uh, having a handful of countries being able to have a veto about what the entire international mm-hmm. community does. Um, those countries being the United Kingdom, France, uh, the United States, Russia, yep. and China. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then there are 10 other um, rotating seats kind of held by regional mm-hmm. or middle powers. Um, I guess we kind of often hear about when Canada has a, a seat on the Security Council. It's kind of a, it's mm-hmm. kind of a big deal normally when your country gets a seat. Uh, you can be there for two years on... Uh, it's half of them rotate every year. Uh, and once you get, if it's your last year, you can't get reelected right away. You gotta be out for a little bit. Yeah. And I think it's, that's, uh, so you often hear of, um, how the security council can essentially, it can't get anything done because you have the United States, you have Russia, the UK, and, and any one thing that one of them likes, the other might not like. Um, but I think something interesting to look at is can, for example, when a a country like Canada wants to get on and when a country like Canada Mm -hmm. wants to get on the security council, they have to court everyone in the general assembly and say, we'll, we're going to increase our funding here. We know we've dropped funding in this priority for you. And if you vote for us, we might, we'll bring it back there, you know, those sorts of things. So there is a certain element I mean, the, these rotational seats are not as significant um, in terms of power. They, I, they don't solve the problem of the fact that if the United States likes something, there's a good chance China won't like it and we can't move forward on certain um, sort of uh, conflict resolution or, or powers of the UN. But um, I think you do get to see some level of of forcing uh, major countries with maybe less permanent, without permanent seats to uh, up their global contribution and be global leaders in the world. Yeah. I think interesting point about mm-hmm. vetoes. 
uh, on the Security Council. Uh, I'm looking at a graph yeah. right now of total vetoes cast, and France and the United Kingdom haven't cast mm-hmm. a veto since 1991. Yeah, and uh, that's because, I, and I think a lot of people would say that's because France and the UK have really seen a need to renegotiate their part, their their position on the Security Council. Their level of power has really shifted. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah. if they were to go vetoing things, there might be talk about why are they still there? Should we get rid of them? But if they're sort of the bridge, mm-hmm. the compromisers. Yeah. Interesting to compare the number of vetoes cast recently by China, France, and the United Kingdom with mm-hmm. historical numbers of vetoes cast yeah. by those by those three players um, and kind of how that follows mm-hmm. their shift in who should really be on <laughs> this, this council. But speaking of permanent <laughs> seats if you want to have a permanent seat at the table of probably about politics go ahead and follow us on the newsletter send us an email to at probably or probably about politics at gmail.com get on the newsletter and when you're there when you're part of the newsletter you can send us emails or when you follow us on twitter you can tweet at us and uh you get a say you get a say in what happens on the show we're talking about these issues today because people have asked specifically about the prime minister and what they do and their role and also about the United Nations. We get questions a lot about when we talk about things on the show, how that actually works. So there's there's value to emailing us because you get to hear about what you want yeah, to hear about. It's a that. democracy. Your voice, your voice matters. It's not a this democracy. Not it's not a, a democracy. democracy. <laughs> I retract that statement. But we will listen to what you say and decide whether we want to do it or not. That was that was a summer a two-part summer school on the role of prime minister in the Westminster system, specifically in Canada. Uh, So we go from a regional level all the way to a supranational level with the United Nations. Uh, And we look at what's going on in New York and also at the four other seats of the United Nations around the world. But if you want to find out what's going on at Parliament Politics, make sure to find that newsletter, send us an email, or follow us at probpolitics on twitter.com. Don't forget to rate and review. Uh, don't forget <laughs> and make sure that you give us five stars or a thumbs up or a like or whatever wherever you're listening um anywhere on spotify SoundCloud. i mean i'm so proud <laughs> i'm so proud of all of our different platforms now yeah we're big i time. dare you to find a platform we're not on yeah if you can find a platform we're not on and then tweet at us <laughs> about it uh you will get 50% off our next piece of merchandise that we run. <laughs> 100% Alex guarantee. Which may or may not be something very, very cheap. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Summer School from Probably Built Politics. Find our next episode on iTunes, Google Play Music, or in the newsletter uh, from probablybuiltpolitics at gmail.com.